All right, well, before we get into the sermon this morning, I do have uh, several baptism certificates to hand out, so I'll go ahead and read these just real quickly. Uh, We have a certificate of baptism. This certificate is awarded to John Gage in recognition of his baptism on the 19th day of June of the year 2022, presented by Verity Baptist Church, and it has the verse, of course, Romans 6, 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And we have some pictures here for uh, Brother John to remember the day of his baptism. And of course, uh, Brother John was baptized with his entire family. So we have certificates and pictures for every member of his family that was baptized last week, uh, Miss Michelle Gage. And then we have um, Arthur uh, Gage. And we also have Uh, Violet Gage. So we have certificates for all of them and then pictures, of course, for them. So we could go ahead and give those to the Gage family. Let's give them a round of applause. (laughs) Amen. And we also have one more uh, certificate. This certificate of baptism is awarded to Shanu Her in recognition of his baptism on the 19th day of June of the year 2022. Again, with the verse Romans 6, 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even though he should walk in newness of life. And we have pictures for Shinu to remember the day of his baptism as well. So we'll go ahead and give that to him. Let's give him a round. <laughs> Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 7. And of course, we are going through a series called Journey with Jesus. It is a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're calling this year at Verity Baptist Church is the year of Jesus. And of course, every year is the year of Jesus. uh, But we're spending uh, this year learning about Jesus, walking with Jesus, studying the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this morning, we come to a story uh, where Jesus is having a meal in the home of a uh, Pharisee. And it's a very interesting story. It's a very moving story, as we've read already this morning. And I'm going to outline it for you and give you some application as, as we go on. And of course, I'd encourage you on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes, and you can maybe write down the outline as we walk through it. But just by way of introduction, let me say this. As a pastor over the last 11 years of ministry, the Lord has allowed my wife and I to be in ministry for 11 years. We started Verity Baptist Church 11 years ago. One of the uh, things that has captured my, my thoughts over the last 11 years, one of the things that my wife and I have had multiple conversations over the last 11 years of, uh, uh, of is, um, is this idea of uh, the different types of Christians Uh, Not everybody becomes a Christian, of course, the same way. Everyone that is a Christian is a Christian the same way. But one thing that has become painfully clear over the last 11 years of ministry is that not all Christians are the same. There are some major differences between Christians. There are some people who get saved and not only get saved, begin to walk with the Lord, begin to attend church, begin to read the Bible, begin to pray. There are some people that wholly give themselves over to the Lord. They are faithful to the church services. They sacrifice. They, I mean, there are church people uh, that go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They go soul winning. They volunteer. They give. They, uh, they, they get involved. They do everything they can. They, 
read their Bibles every day, pray every day, uh, and really give their lives over to the Lord. And then there are other Christians who, by all means of perception, seem like they barely have a walk with God, seem like they can barely be bothered to even show up to church half the time, seem like they're just apathetic. They don't really have, they might be saved, and I'm not doubting their salvation, but there's no walk with God there. And this has perplexed me because, of course, my job is to disciple Christians. My job is to help you grow in the Lord. And as much as we've tried and we've tried and we've tried, I've always wondered, what is it? What is the missing key? What is the missing ingredient? What is the difference between the person who serves God wholly with their whole life and the person, they're both saved, that can barely be bothered, barely give themselves of God at all? And the answer to that question is found in this text. The answer to that question is found in this story. In fact, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ orchestrated this entire scene that we're about to dissect this morning to teach us this lesson and to show us what is the difference between those who serve God with their lives and those who don't. Now, you're there in Luke chapter number 7. Now, I can notice in verse number 36, our story begins with an invitation. And if you're taking notes, if you want to outline the passage, maybe you can write that down, an invitation. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 36, the Bible says, And one of the Pharisees desired him, the him there is referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. So we see here in verse 36 that Jesus receives an invitation from this Pharisee. The Pharisee desired him that he would eat with him. Notice verse 36, and uh, excuse me, uh, last part there of verse 36. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to me. Jesus is invited for a meal, and he accepts the invitation. Now, I'd like you to keep your finger there in Luke chapter 7. That's our text for this morning, but go backwards with me into the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 12. You're there in Luke, so you're just going to go past the book of Mark into the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. And if you would, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Matthew, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back. We're going to go back and forth between Luke and Matthew a little bit this morning. And I want to begin by asking this question, or trying to answer this question, is this invitation hospitality or hostility? Uh, is this invitation this Pharisee just being hospitable and trying to be nice to Lord Jesus Christ, or is there an ulterior motive? Is it a hostile invitation? Was the Pharisee being nice, or was he trying to catch Jesus in a trap? And something that you are probably aware of, if you're familiar with the New Testament, is that the Pharisees were, by and large, hostile towards the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, in verse 14, the Bible says this, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, against Jesus, how they might destroy him. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you'll notice that uh, in the storyline of the Gospels, of course, Jesus is our hero, and the Pharisees would be the nemesis. They would be the 
enemies. They are the ones that are constantly trying to destroy Jesus, catch him in his words. Here we're told in Matthew 12, 14 that they held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Look down at verse number 24 in the same chapter, Matthew 12, verse 24. The Bible says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow, referring to Jesus, doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Beelzebub is a reference to Lucifer himself and to Satan. And here, the Pharisees, we hear them say about Jesus that when he casts out devils, he doesn't do it by the Spirit of God, but he does it by the prince of the devils. He does it by Beelzebub. They're saying he's filled with Satan. He's filled with the devils. So I want you to notice that the Pharisees as a group were hostile towards uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have a Pharisee inviting Jesus over for a meal, which is also interesting because the Pharisees were not only hostile towards Jesus, they were very critical of Jesus's eating habits. If you're there in Matthew 12, look, look, look uh, up at verse number 1, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1. For some reason, it seems that the Pharisees liked, they, they took food very seriously. And they like to attack Jesus on the basis of food. I'll just give you an example. Matthew 12, verse 1. The Bible said that that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. So notice there Jesus and his disciples are having a meal, and the Pharisees show up to attack him on the basis of how they are going about that meal. Let me give you some other examples. Go to Matthew chapter 9. You're there in Matthew 12. Just flip back to Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 11. Matthew 9 and verse 11. Matthew 9 and 11 says this, And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, notice their criticism of Jesus, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? They're criticizing in Matthew 12 how he eats. In Matthew 9, they're criticizing who he eats with. And uh, in, in, in verse 14, if you skip down Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, they're criticizing how often he eats. Look at verse 14. Then came to him, referring to Jesus, the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? So I just think it's interesting that the Pharisees, when I envision the Pharisees, I envision some very big men uh, because they obviously took eating very seriously. And they would criticize the Lord Jesus Christ about his eating habits. Go, go to Matthew chapter 22. This is the last one I'll show you here in this little run of verses. Matthew 22. So you can understand why when a Pharisee invites Jesus over for a meal... When the Pharisees are the nemesis of the Lord Jesus Christ, they're hostile towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're often criticizing his eating habits, when a Pharisee would invite Jesus over to a meal, you would be suspicious. Your eyebrows should raise a little bit. There should be a question there. Is this hospitality or is this hostility? Especially when you understand that it was the Pharisees who were often trying to catch Jesus doing something wrong. Matthew 22, are you there? Look at verse 15. Matthew 22 and verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So the Pharisees were often trying to trap Jesus, catch Jesus, 
catch him doing something wrong, catch him uh, saying something wrong, entangling him in his words. And they were trying to uh, 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 catch him doing something wrong. Keep your finger there in Matthew. We're going to come back to Matthew here in a minute, but go back to Luke chapter 7. So we start with this invitation, and you've got to ask the question, is it hospitality or is it hostility? Now, I'll give you my opinion. My opinion is that it's hostility. It was a hostile invitation. And I think that becomes very apparent later on in the story as we walk through this passage together. But, but let me just go ahead and say this. If, if, if it was hostility, which I believe it is, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that. Jesus knew it was a hostile invitation. Jesus knew that the invitation was meant to catch him in something wrong. And Jesus accepted the invitation anyway, and I believe he accepted the invitation for a very specific reason, because Jesus obviously knew what would happen at this meal, and he wanted it to happen so that he could make a point, so that he could teach us a lesson. So that 2,000 years later, it would be documented in the Word of God for you and for me that we might be edified by what happened at this dinner with Jesus. So we begin the story with an invitation from the Pharisee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like you notice, secondly, if you're taking notes, maybe you can write this down. Not only is there an invitation, but there is an interruption. Notice there in Luke chapter 7 and verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, I want you to notice how this woman is described, which was a sinner. A woman in the city, which was a sinner. We're not told what sins this woman was involved in. Later on in the passage, the Pharisee makes a big deal about the manner of woman that she was. But what we can gather, what most Bible preachers believe and what seems to be consistent in Scripture, is that whenever the sins of a woman in the Bible are emphasized, not in the Bible, but emphasized by this ancient culture, it's uh, hypocritical Uh, Obviously, sins of the physical relationship between a man and a woman are both sinful on both uh, sides of male and female. But for whatever reason, in the ancient world and even in our culture today, it seems to be emphasized uh, upon women. A man could be a fornicator, and it's wrong, and it's a sin, uh, but society seems to see it as less than if a woman uh, were to indulge or be in that sin. And here we're told that this woman of the city, uh, of, uh, of the city, she was a sinner. Here's what we know is that Jesus and his ministry impacted many sinners. And when it came to women, it impacted uh, many harlots. Keep your finger there again, if you would, Luke chapter 7, and, and go back to Matthew 21. If, I, if we had to guess, I would say that this woman was probably a prostitute. Uh, she was probably a harlot. Matthew 21 and verse 31, if you go back to Matthew, Matthew 21 and verse 31, the Bible says, Whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him the first. And I'm not going to take the time to go through the story, but Jesus just got done giving the Pharisees a parable of two sons, one who was told, they were both told to go work in the field. The first said, I will go, and, re- and then doesn't. The second says, I will not, and then repent and goes. And Jesus is making the application here. He says, whether of them twain did the will of his father, they say unto him the first. Jesus saith unto them, verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots, and that's the biblical word for a prostitute, the publicans and the harlots 
the Bible says, go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees here. In verse 32, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. And I'm not preaching on the subject of repentance this morning, but let me just highlight that for you. In the Bible, when it comes to salvation, whenever somebody repents, they go from unbelief to belief. They go from not believing to believing, or not believing the right thing to believing. But I would just want to highlight for you that uh, Jesus had a ministry in which publicans and sinners and harlots, many harlots, were uh, saved. And when you go back to Luke chapter 7 and verse 37, you find this woman of the city, which was a sinner, this woman that has a reputation for being a sinner, and she was likely a prostitute, probably a uh, harlot, uh, some sort of, uh, of sinful lifestyle in regards to uh, that, that type of of life. But I want you to notice that this woman, though she was a sinner, we're told, she was extremely appreciative. Notice again there, Luke chapter 7 and verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, which knew that Jesus sat at meat. Remember the invitation. Now we have the interruption. Which knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his, referring to Jesus' feet, behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, you have to get this, I, 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 this, this picture in your head. Here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a very well-known, you might use the word famous character at this time in his culture. And this Pharisee invites him into his house for a meal. And the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us this, but history tells us this, that in those days it was common that there would be many people at this meal. It would not be a private affair, but it would be a form of entertainment where uh, they, these high-level religious leaders or politicians would have some sort of a well-known uh, individual over for a meal and there might be many people that are there to listen in on the conversation to watch to hear and maybe even to eat with them so it would not be uncommon that someone would just walk in and be a part of this conversation but it would be uncommon for someone of this caliber this woman which was known to be a sinner comes in to the midst of this invitation and not only comes in, but interrupts the whole thing. As Jesus is sitting there having a meal with this Pharisee, she takes her place behind him and begins to wash his feet with her tears, begins to wipe his feet with her hair, begins to kiss his feet and anoint his feet with, uh, with ointment from this alabaster box, we see this woman that was a sinner, yet extremely appreciative. She interrupts this dinner. So we saw the invitation. We saw the interruption. Like you notice, thirdly, there's an indignation. Notice the response from the Pharisee, verse 39. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. He didn't say this out loud. He said this in his mind. He spake within himself saying, this man, referring to Jesus, 
So here we have the Pharisee having dinner with Jesus. This woman with a reputation walks in, uh, takes her place behind Jesus. She's weeping. She's weeping so much that she can literally wipe and wash his feet with her tears. She begins to wipe them down with her hair. She begins to kiss his feet and wipe the, and anoint them with an alabaster box. And this Pharisee, which had bitten him when he saw it, he spake within himself saying, now notice what he says. He says, the, 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 the Pharisee is indignant. He uh, is upset. He says, this man is if he were a prophet questioning Jesus. He says, I invited this man. Supposedly this man is a prophet. Supposedly this man is a preacher. Supposedly this man uh, performs miracles. Supposedly this man uh, has, has insight from God and ability. And he says, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known, notice the emphasis, who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a sinner. He's indignant. There's indignation. The Pharisee looks at this episode and he says, if this guy was everything people say he was, if he really was a man of God, if he really was a prophet, he would have known, he should have known who and what manner of woman it is that is touching him. And he's saying this within himself. He says, doesn't he know that she is a sinner? Let me just say this. Something you find about the Lord Jesus Christ as you study the Gospels is that people that were not like Jesus like Jesus. People that were nothing like the Lord Jesus Christ would come to Christ, would find forgiveness. And we see this woman with appreciation in her heart. If you would, go back to Matthew chapter 9 just real quickly. I'm really giving you this all by way of introduction because we're going to get into the application of the sermon here in a minute. But just by way of introduction, let me just say this. If we are going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that we reach people that are not like us. Amen. And we need to make sure that people that are not like us are comfortable around us. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, the Bible says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? I want you to notice that Jesus did not have this attitude where it was just this little clique of believers. It was just us four and no more. And there is a, uh, an, an issue in churches when this culture can, uh, can, can, can come into a church, this idea idea that, well, everybody that we reach, we just want them to be like us, and we want them to live in the neighborhood we live in, and drive vehicles like we drive, and dress like we dress, and, 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 and be like us. And look, that was not the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You're there in Matthew. You're going to go past Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, I do believe that as people grow in the Lord and as they're discipled, then they should become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us have many uh, uh, very similar standards of living and, and standards, maybe dress standards and separation standards. You say, why is that? Is that because we're a cult? No, it's because we're all trying to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the closer we get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we're going to be like. But let me tell you something. I hope... I hope that our church always has people in it that just don't really know. 
that, that just, they come in and they're just not dressed quite right. And they just don't really understand all the lingo. And they're not really sure about everything. You say, why? Because that means we're reaching new people. And as those people grow and learn and mature, I hope new people come in that aren't dressed right, that aren't doing right, that need help, that need us to, to, to come alongside them. And let us never become the type of people that make others feel uncomfortable because they're not quite like us. You can look at a visitor and say, well, they're a mess. Well, you were a mess when you showed up too. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 20. Notice what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 20. And unto the Jews, Paul says, and unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without the law, as without the law. Now here's the caveat, though. Don't miss this in the parentheses. Being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ. See, we should try to be Paul said, to the Jew I became as unto the Jew. To them that are under the law, as under the law. To them that are not under the law, as not under the law. But he said, but never without law to Christ. See, we should not sin in order to try to fit in with people. We're always under the law of Christ. But we can be like the Lord Jesus Christ and be full of both truth and grace. To them, verse 21, that are without the law, as without the law, being not without law, but to God but under the law of Christ that I might gain them that are without the law to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. Notice these words. He says, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. Let's, let, let's never have this attitude that, well, that person doesn't look like us. Doesn't act like us. Doesn't come from our uh, uh, background. Hey, praise God! Yeah, right. I, I, you say, do you, do you Pastor Menes, do you want to, do, do you feel like you have to go get a tattoo? Hey, look, I don't have to put a tattoo on my face to reach people with tattoos on their face. But I can, I can, I can be who I am, right with God, loving the Lord, and people that are not like me, like me. Amen. This man had some indignation because this woman, go back to Luke chapter 7 if you would. This woman who had a reputation of a sinner. And now he begins to criticize the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a sinner. So we saw the invitation. We saw the interruption. We saw the indignation. I'd like you to notice, fourthly this morning, we see an illustration. In verse 40, Jesus says what should be taken as some very scary words by this Pharisee. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 40, the Bible says, And Jesus answering said unto him, It's interesting the Bible says Jesus answering because the man didn't say anything. He said within himself. When you ask a question in your head and the guy sitting across from you answers the question out loud, that should be a hint. The Bible says, And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. I love those words. Those should be very scary words to this man. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master. Really, Master? You just got done saying in your head, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known 
who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. But now we're speaking out loud, and Jesus says, Simon, I have someone to say unto thee. And he says, Master, say on. And Jesus goes on to give a story. He goes on to give an illustration. He gives us what is known as a parable. It is an earthly story with a spiritual application. And he goes on to say the story. He says, I have someone to say unto thee. Simon answers, Master, say on. And Jesus gives us this illustration. It's a picture of salvation. Notice verse 41. There was a certain creditor. Now, if you don't mind writing in your Bible or underlining your Bible or taking notes in your Bible, you can put an arrow next to that word creditor and write these words, represents God. In this parable, in this story, in this illustration, this creditor is a representation of God. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. Next to those words, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, underlining your Bible, taking notes in your Bible. Next to the word debtors, you can write, put a little arrow and write the word sinners. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. We have two debtors, but one owes more than the other. The Bible tells us in a different parable that a pence or a penny in Bible times was the equivalent of a day's wages for a laborer out in the field. So if you were to go out and find a laborer to work your field for a day, what they would earn, a fair wage, would be a penny. So just to help us kind of put this into context, let's uh, just say that a penny is, is $100, just to use a, a round number. Jesus said there was this creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence. 500 pence would maybe we could use the illustration of uh, they had a debt of $50,000. And the other 50, 50 pence, we could say it's maybe $5,000. Two debtors, both sinners, sinners nonetheless. One owing 50,000, the other owing 5,000. See, the two debtors represent sinners. The creditor represents God. Notice verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, you got to underline that phrase, nothing to pay. You know that salvation is this? You have nothing to pay. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. See, it doesn't matter whether you owe 500 pence or 5,000 pence or 5 pence, $50,000, $5,000, or $5. At the end of the day, none of us has nothing to pay. They had nothing to pay. You say, what does this represent? It represents our inability to save ourselves. The Bible says, and you know the verses, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Why does it say not of yourselves? Here's why. Because you cannot pay for your own salvation. And neither can I. You say, why can't I pay? Because you had nothing to pay. 
Isaiah 64 and verse 6, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our unrighteousness, or all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The Bible says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Look, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It does not matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how honest you are. And, and all those things are good in the sense of being a good human being and productive member of society. But when it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter how good you are because at the end of the day, you're not good enough. James 2.10 tells us, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. They have nothing to pay. It represents our inability to save ourselves. You say, what is salvation? Salvation is this, that you have nothing to pay. I have nothing to pay. You may be a bigger sinner than I am. I may be a bigger sinner than you are. You might owe 500 pence while I only owe uh, 5,000 pence or vice versa. But at the end of the day, none of us had nothing to pay. You say, what is forgiveness? Look at verse, or what is salvation? Look at verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. That's salvation. Salvation is this. You know what the gospel is? Is this. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Our sin has condemned us to hell. No matter how good you are, no matter how few sins you have, one sin's enough to send you to hell. All sins are not equal, but any sin will send you to hell. And we, we have nothing to pay, and he frankly forgave them both. So we see the invitation. We see the interruption. We see the indignation. We see the illustration. The illustration is that there is a creditor who represents God, and there are two debtors who represent different types of sinners. One owes more than the other. One uh, 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 has a much higher debt than the other. But at the end of the day, neither is able to pay. And he, the creditor, if they get saved, frankly, forgave them both. I'd like you to notice, fifthly this morning, the interpretation. What I like about Jesus is that whenever he preached, he always was heavy on application. We try to be that way at Verity Baptist Church. I try not to just teach you the Bible. I try to teach you the Bible and then apply it. And Jesus is about to come in for the application or the interpretation. We saw... The picture of salvation, but in the interpretation, we see a picture of service. Notice verse 42. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. And then Jesus asked this question. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? I'd like you to notice the Pharisees' perception. In verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose. I like that word, suppose. It speaks of hesitancy. You know this guy knows he's getting set up. I mean, you know this guy is just this little hamster is just, you know, running up there. And he's just like, okay, you know, I'm getting set up here. This guy's smarter than I am. I mean, he could hear my thoughts. And he's just, uh, he's like, okay, you know, I know there's an illustration here. Okay, I think the creditor might be God. And the, but who are these two debtors? <laughs> who are these two debtors? And then he asks this question, 
Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon answered and said, I, I suppose, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. The question is, who will love the creditor most? And he says, I guess the one that forgave most, that was forgiven most, the one with the biggest debt. And he said unto him, notice Jesus, thou hast rightly judged. The Pharisee's perception is right. He understands, okay, the guy that owes more loves more. We see the Pharisee's perception, but Jesus now begins to inspect the Pharisee's performance. Look at verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I, I, I love how Jesus says it because he doesn't, he doesn't say, You see this woman that's a sinner? You see this sinner? He says, seest thou this woman? Now, Jesus begins to compare the performance or the service of the Pharisee versus the woman. Jesus said, the Bible says in verse 44, and he turned to the woman and said unto the Simon, seest thou this woman? Notice the comparison between the two. He compares and contrasts. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. History tells us that in the ancient world at the time of Christ, it was a common thing that when you went to somebody's house that they would give you water to wash your feet with because in the ancient world, of course, most people walked and they either walked barefoot or they walked with some sort of what we would call sandals and their feet would tend to get very dirty and as a hospitality, as an act of hospitality, the same way that maybe someone would walk into your house and you would ask to take their coat, uh, this would be a form of respect, of being hospitable. You would offer them water to wash their feet. If they were a VIP, if they were a, a very important guest in your house, you would not offer them water to wash their feet. You would wash their feet for them or have a servant wash their feet. This is why I believe that this was a hostile invitation because Jesus says, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with, my, with her tears. He says, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Verse 45, he says, Thou gavest me no kiss. Again, in the ancient world, this was common in their culture that they would greet each other with a kiss, and even men with men would greet each other with a kiss. I understand that's odd in our culture. Our culture is different. Well, our culture is becoming more like that, but that's a different story. <laughs> this had nothing to do with, with perversity. It, it was just the, the culture of the day where you would be greeted with a kiss. If you remember Judas, when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, he told the guards, the one whom I kiss, he is the one. And Judas came and kissed Jesus. It was not uncommon. Jesus said to Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss? This was a common thing. That's why in the, in the epistles, the apostle Paul talks about uh, greeting each other with a holy kiss. This was a common way to greet someone. But Jesus says to this Pharisee, verse 45, thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. He says in verse 46, My head with oil thou didst not anoint. Again, a way that you would show honor to a guest. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. 
See, Jesus says, when I look at the performance, when I look at the performance of this woman in comparison to you, Simon, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou dost not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Notice verse 47, we see the perspective. He says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. We see this application. Go with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John. You're there in Luke, if you flip over. John chapter 14. I told you as I started this sermon, one of the questions that has perplexed me as a pastor over the last 11 years of ministry is, why is it that some people serve God wholeheartedly, fully with their hearts? I mean, it's no sacrifice to them to be in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. It's no sacrifice to them to be a soul winner on Saturday mornings or whatever time fits their schedule. It's no sacrifice to them to willingly offer 10% of their income to the Lord in obedience to Christ. No sacrifice to them to read the Bible every day. No sacrifice for them to be, have a daily devotional with the Lord and spend time with the Lord. No sacrifice for them to walk with God, to live for God, to do right. No sacrifice for them. And yet there are other Christians who are just as saved, just as forgiven, just as on their way to heaven, yet it seems like they can barely be bothered to even show up to church on a Sunday morning. What's the difference? And what Jesus is teaching us and I don't mean to offend you, but some of you need to be offended. What Jesus is teaching us that the difference is love. See, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou dost not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. What's the difference? Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. See, the key to service for God is love. Are you there in John 14? Look at verse 15. That's what Jesus says. I like Jesus because he's very offensive sometimes. He's very offensive in a nice way. That's what I try to be like. <laughs> I don't, it doesn't always come off that way. He says, if you love me, Jesus has the audacity to question your love. Would you question my love, Jesus? He's like, I'm about to question it, yeah. It's interesting to me that Jesus does not just assume that you love him. It's interesting to me that Jesus does not just assume that I love him. He does not say, well, you know, because that's how we talk. You know, we, uh, as people, we try to not offend. Well, of course, we all love each other. Jesus says, I don't assume that you love me. He says, I question your love. 
He says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. And here's, and here's the understanding. When you don't keep my commandments, don't tell me you love me. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Can I say, can I just, can I just be honest with you? Why do some people serve God more than others? They love God more than others, period. Why do some people who used to serve God don't serve God as much anymore? Because they used to love God more than they love God now. Period. Why do some people who used to not serve God all of a sudden get right with God and begin to serve God later on in their lives? Because they love God more. There is a direct correlation between your service for God and your love for God. And it has nothing to do with salvation. If you love me, keep my commandments. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 14. Notice what Paul says. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. The word constrain means to restrain, to hold fast. He says, look, I can't do anything else but what I'm doing. You say, why? Because the love of Christ constraineth us. You say, why does the love of Christ constrain us? Notice what he says. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all. And they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I really, I really hope you didn't miss that. See, here's the kicker. The kicker is this. He says, he says, you know why she loves me so much? Because she understands that she has a lot of sins, a big debt that was forgiven. And he says, Simon, you think your sins are not much. But please understand this. The application is not this, that when you, li- when you have a lot of sins, you're going to serve God more. That's not the application. The application is this, perception. Those who understand that I was a sinner, no matter how good I was, I was a sinner condemned to hell on my way to hell and Jesus saved me. He didn't have to die on the cross. He didn't have to go down to hell for my sins. He didn't have to give me salvation, but he did it anyway. Those people get up every day and say, I'd love to serve God with my life. And you know why you don't? Because you think too highly of yourself. See, here's the truth. You had a debt, period. End of story. You could not pay for it. Well, I wasn't that bad. You were bad enough. You were bad enough. And you know what every Christian ought to do? Every Christian ought to get up every day and fall down on their knees and say, Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. How can I serve you today? But that's not what the average Christian does. The average Christian says, Well, I better show up to church or they're going to call me again. And it shows your love. And it shows how little you think of the sacrifice of God. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. You understand what Paul is saying? He said, we thus judge. We understand that if one, Jesus, died for all, we were all in trouble. He says, we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He doesn't say, well, I was in a little trouble and you were in big trouble. No, no, we were all dead. We were all in trouble. 
We were all sinners condemned to hell. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And that he died for all. Do you understand that Jesus did not die more for you than he died for me? He died for all. And thus he died, and that he died for all, that they which live, here are the key words, should not. It doesn't say would not. Should not henceforth live unto themselves. See, someone who really understood what salvation was and the forgiveness that they've received, they should not live for themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You say, what's the difference between Christians who wholeheartedly give themselves over to God and those that don't? It's not that they weren't both sinners. They were both sinners. It's not that they didn't both have a debt. They both had a debt. It's not that they were both in, not incapable of paying their debt because neither one could pay for their debts. Is that one is a Pharisee who thinks more highly of themselves than they should. And the other is like the sinful woman who says, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Go to Romans chapter 12 if you would. Romans chapter 12. In the Bible, there is this cycle. Different people call it different things. I call it the cycle of sin. It's the most apparent, if you've never seen it, in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, you have this book where have the children of Israel, they're doing right, God's blessing them. They begin to do wrong, they sin. Then they go into captivity. Then they, things get so bad that they call out to God. God sends a judge to deliver them. Then they're right with God for a while. Then they get apathetic, get backslidden. They begin to sin. God brings them into captivity. They get fed up with captivity. They call out to God. God sends a judge. And the cycle, the book of Judges, is just the cycle. And you read the book of Judges and you think to yourself, are these people stupid or something? I mean, how many times are they going to go through the cycle? And not because it's a cycle of destruction. It's the cycle of, of, of destruction. And, and, then, and then God, they get right with God. So they have dedication. But then once they've been dedicated for a while, they have indifference. And once they have apathy, they get bored. So then they go into disobedience, which leads to destruction, which causes them to get dedicated by forgot. It's a cycle. Destruction, dedication, indifference, disobedience. Destruction, dedication, indifference, disobedience. Destruction, God destroys them. God allows judgment in their life. God punishes them. They get right with God. Then they're dedicated for a while, but then they have indifference and they get backslidden. Then punishment comes again because of their disobedience and then they get right with God. And you look at judges and you think, are these people crazy? And then you pastor for 11 years. And then you realize, oh, this is how people live their lives. 
they have some major tragedy in their marriage. And they come to church and they need counseling and they need this and they need that. And we're happy to provide it because we're a spiritual hospital and we will love them and care for them. And then they'll dedicate themselves to God and they'll get right with God for a while. And Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday But then they get indifferent. And then they get backslidden. And then they start fading away. But then, because of that, they get back into sin, get back into punishment, get back into problems. They relapse. They have issues with their marriage. They have issues with their children. Then they get right with God. And we're right there to counsel them and help them and help them along the way. Then they get dedicated for a while. And then they're serving God on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, so on. And then they get backslidden again. You don't think we've watched this? I'm not talking about with people. I'm talking about with just individuals in this church. This has been their lives. And we look at it and think to ourselves, are you stupid? Are you stupid? Don't you notice every time you stop missing, start missing Sunday night church, start missing Wednesday night church, start missing your Bible reading, start missing your prayer time, you start going back into the old lifestyle that brought you here to begin with? You say, Pastor, what do you do? I pray, Lord, destroy them as gently as possible. And then you watch other people, and they just serve God. They just serve God. They're just faithful to God. They, they realize, if I go down that road, it's not going to be good for me. What got me here was my marriage was falling apart. What got me here was my children were falling apart. What got me here was addiction. What got me here was drunkenness. What got me here was pornography. What got me here was adultery. What got me here was a mess of my life. So I'm going to stay right here. That's what people who realize they are sinners and they are only good when they're in the presence of God do. Everyone else seems to forget and slowly fade away till they mess up again. And then they come back through the cycle. You say, Pastor, does it frustrate? It doesn't frustrate me. We're here to help anyone, anytime. But you know what I wish? I wish you'd get yourself off the stinking cycle and just decide to love God. And just realize, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus, period. Not just for salvation, I need him for my life. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Amen. You know what I would do? What I, you know what I would do if, if I was a husband, and this is not my situation? But you know what I would do if I was a husband and my wife was like, I don't know. I don't think I want to go to church Sunday night. You know, I know we go to church Sunday night, but I don't really want to start going to church. I'm, I'm tired. You know what I would do? I would say, Are you trying to destroy our marriage? That's what I would do. You know what I would do if I had a husband who's like, I know we go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, so on, but I don't think I want to do it anymore. If I was a wife, I'd say, are you trying to destroy our marriage? That's what I would do. Are you trying to destroy our children? Are you trying to destroy everything we've worked for? We've seen what you do when you're not with God. We've seen what you do when you're not right with God. You're a sinner. Don't start thinking you got 50 pence. You got 500 pence. You need Jesus. 
We all need Jesus. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Let me tell you something. Pastor Jimenez and Miss Joanne Jimenez who started this church, if we stopped reading our Bibles, if we stopped praying, if we stopped soul winning, if we stopped being faithful to church, we would ruin our lives. So it's not me telling you, you're ruining your life. I'm telling you, every Christian. Every Christian needs to wake up every day and say, I am a sinner. And I need Jesus. Not just for salvation. Not just for salvation. For sanctification, for service. And your service will tell the story. Who serves God the most? The people who realize the measure of their forgiveness. Go back to Luke chapter 7. We saw an invitation. We saw an interruption. We saw an indignation. We saw an illustration, an interpretation. Let me end this morning by just giving you an implication. So what is an implication? It is a conclusion that can be drawn from something although it is not explicitly stated. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 48, the Bible says, And he said unto her, this is Jesus now speaking to the woman, he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. They are now offended because he's forgiving sins. They are asking this question. Who is this that forgiveth sins also? I'll tell you who it is. It is God in the flesh. It is God incarnate. Why did Jesus forgive sins? Because Jesus is God. Because he is God in the flesh. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's an implication here when Jesus forgives sin that he is God. Because only God can forgive sin. And I'm just hoping you'll understand this. I'm hoping you'll get this little nugget of truth. That God in the flesh came down to this earth to die on the cross for your sins. I wonder if you could be bothered to serve him. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray for Christians, Christians in this very church who are on this sin cycle right now. Wake them up, Lord. Help us all to realize that we need you, and without you, we can do nothing. And before we start getting our heads all lifted up and thinking, I'm okay, I'm not okay, I need Jesus. I pray you'd help us to wake up every day realizing that we were a debtor. And God sent his son to be born of a virgin, to die on the cross. And because of that great sacrifice, I should give my life to you. We love you, Lord. I pray you'd help our actions to prove it. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.